Ms. Ostapenko has no challenges remaining. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining, our Wimbledon rap show. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by NCR's Middle East and North Africa correspondent Reem Abuleil. Reem, welcome back to NCR and welcome back home after Wimbledon. How are you? How are you doing? Thank you, Benjamin. I am very good and I'm very happy to see you. Happy to see you as well. You're back at Wimbledon after a few years not being there. How did it feel to be back? I know there's been a bunch of changes there. Uh, since you were last there. How was your whole championships experience on site? Yes, this was my first time there since 2019. Obviously, 2020, there wasn't uh, a tournament. 2021, mm-hmm. I don't think I was just, I wasn't traveling much. It wasn't easy getting visas and things like that. And then 2022, my famous visa debacle where they gave me an expired right. visa. So yeah, um, actually, I was very happy to be there. Like as soon as I got there, because again, because we go to the same tournaments all the time, and 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 our our life is very like cyclical. It was yeah. so nice to be somewhere where you hadn't been in four years. I also I will say that I was very impressed with the new. They have a whole new media facility, like a whole media center mm-hmm. pavilion situation that is great. It's so fancy. It's so clean. It's so nice. It's very it's good. Very good space for everyone because you remember like the smaller rooms and everything were so crammed and. They were kind of a yeah. bit separate from the main rooms and things like that. They, they call it the media theater now because it does feel like you're in a movie theater. It's pretty cool for the main interview room. And uh, they ha- and you're connected to all the broadcasts, which I think is super helpful, super, super helpful. So all the broadcasts... Uh, so now, you know, do you remember where the, the roof of the broadcast center was? Yes. That, that is now what is usable for all of us. First of all, there's plenty of space to take your laptop if you need to stick around there if a player is late or things like that. All you have to do is go to the, the, the rooftop terrace, which is all the broadcasters are there, but there are plenty of benches and stuff. And you can watch all the st- matches on court 14 and on court 18. Uh, so it's a very good spot as well. If you Actually, if you're a journalist and you need to cover court 18, you don't actually need to squeeze yourself onto the court because you can just watch yeah. it from the broadcast roof. That was great. And also, I'm very happy that Wimbledon has restored all of our access, which probably was the same last year. I, I wouldn't know. You would know because you were there. Largely, yeah. Yeah. But we had full access to uh, Orangi, to the player lawns. Uh, they actually have a new area that they did this year for players, which is, if you remember where the old media center was, the, the interview area, that is now yeah. this like super fancy connected through tunnels like big area with couches and stuff and it's more of a quiet area but we have access there so it's a great place to interview coaches and stuff so they they're they're renovating a lot of things and then i think eventually within a couple of years everything will be way more connected than it is right now because there's still a few things that they're doing and i loved it it was it was amazing and i don't know why but i felt like the hype around wimbledon this year just in terms of like people showing up like you have like multiple days where Roger is there, multiple days where David Beckham is there and all these different people. But there was like an, on a single day, you would be bumping into so many like different interesting people. And uh, I don't know, everyone was really into it, which is which is like infectious in the end, because then you get really into it. And yeah, it was really, really nice. That's great. Yeah. And I think I came across watching it on TV. It's my first time missing Wimbledon, actually, since 2012. I've been at every Wimbledon there had been held. Not the pandemic cancellation, obviously, but others. And my first time watching it on TV, and I do think they capture a pretty good job of just seeing, like you said, oh yeah, all the people, the sort of celebrity watching at Wimbledon. It's my favorite of the year. I know there's some different group of celebrities at the US Open every year, but for me, I think Wimbledon, it feels like they're more there for the event and kind of get into the Wimbledon spirit of things in a really, in a way that feels authentic to it. They kind of do Wimbledon cosplay, whatever you want to call it. Everyone kind of gets the Wimbledon memo and shows up uh, in the right vibe both fans and, and celebrities alike. So yeah, I definitely sense that. And yeah, it's, it's great to see and you back there too. I mean, obviously having you back there is great for, for the sport and for coverage of everything as well. I want to get into the results. We're going to do this. this is our whole tournament wrap show, but want to stay relatively big picture on a lot of the things, especially things that happened this last weekend. Uh, we're recording this a few hours after the men's final, which was won by Carlos Alcaraz, the number one seed, beating the number two seed, Novak Djokovic, one six seven six six one. Three six six four in four hours and forty two minutes. I guess I'll just start with Reem. Like, how surprised were you by this result? And this is number one being number two. But for me, I was picking Djokovic fairly confidently in this match. Uh, Got to say, for a lot of different reasons. You know, he hadn't 
lost at Wimbledon in a long time, especially on center court, winning 45 matches in a row. And it just feels like so often with the big three guys, like anytime you doubt them, they, they prove you wrong. So how, how surprised are you by this result today? Let's just start with that, with, with Alcaraz beating Djokovic in this Wimbledon final. I think I was very surprised. I knew Alcaraz was going to do much better than Paris, and I feel like he obviously would have learned from that and, and figured out a way to handle the nerves. And so I, I think that he was going to do better than Paris. Uh, I thought he was going to do that. But I think every single person I knew before the tournament even started said, like, Novak's winning this. Yeah. And Novak didn't really give us any reason to doubt that during his run as well throughout the championship so I was like especially when he took the first set 6-1 that kind of cemented it I was like okay for sure Alcaraz will step up uh, and can make this competitive but I genuinely what I learned in general from the from this tournament which we can get more into later is that we almost overestimated people's experience on grass as being a determining factor because like if, if in both finals the player with yeah. more with more experience on grass is the player that lost. So I just think that somehow maybe because it was quite warm, it was even though it was raining a lot, but it was quite a, a warm Wimbledon. It wasn't cold at all most of the days. I mean, today was windy, but in general, it wasn't cold. And maybe I don't know the conditions somehow neutralized the whole grass element thing, or maybe just people f- are feeling co- more confident for whatever reason. Well, maybe even just by the final, by the time you get to a final, maybe it equalizes then because everyone's won six matches to get there. That is true. And with Al- in Alcaraz's case, he was on an 11-match winning streak on the surface, yeah, which I'm sure helped. But still, like like you said, Novak's numbers are ridiculous. He hadn't lost on that court in 10 years, and he hadn't lost at Wimbledon since 2017. And he's just the superior player on grass going for an eighth title there. I definitely was very surprised that Alcaraz won this. But of course, at, while I was watching the match, I was like, this kid is the perfect reminder that if you're really, really good, it doesn't matter where you're playing. Just set, put him on space, he's going to win. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I think Naomi Osaka said something like that at some point. Like, if you're good enough, experience doesn't matter. Like, you could be just that good. And it's such a fascinating matchup for me the two of them because Alcaraz still feels I saw this in Paris in their match too like feels very loose and very free and very spontaneous and instinctive on court in a lot of ways whereas Djokovic is so precise and meticulous and everything and it's this sort of like wild rambunctious youth hitting sometimes a lot of low percentage shots I think maybe more in Paris than today versus this guy who's so in control and everything and and it was a really interesting it's a really interesting matchup uh, just to see the two of them go head to head I think yeah, after Paris, especially. Well, after several, many different things. I mean, obviously the Paris match was looking good and was, I think, really, really highly anticipated. I had my hopes up for that match for sure. And then it was just so deflating how it fell apart so quickly in that third set. And the last two sets of it were just kind of painful to watch and a slow march or fast march at times to the end of that match. So that was in my mind. And then also just seeing how hard it is to to bury Djokovic one of these matches. You know, we've seen so many players including like Sinner last year, various players at other slams as well, you know, who got up one or two sets on Djokovic and even a break or something. And it still just feels like he's always kind of in control of the best of five format and feels like he can sort of swing it his way whenever he needs to and knows exactly how much space he has. And he forced a fifth set in this match after losing a second and third. But yeah, but Alcaraz didn't really, didn't flinch physically or mentally. And, and after how rough that French Open was for him to to learn so dramatically so quickly I was super super impressed by and and he said in his press he said I'm a totally different player than the French Open I grew up a lot since that moment I learned a lot from that moment and it was a month ago I mean it really like he does have this dramatic growth but it is still really quick but that's but that's what I love about him as well is that he's at that age where you know, like, if you think about it, if if you have a young niece or nephew and you travel for four months and, and they're like, right. I don't know, one year old and you travel for four months and you come back and you're like, oh, my God, this changed so much. It's really funny yeah. because almost with him and tennis, that's what he's doing. Like, he's, he's and that's what he kept saying. He's growing up so fast and learning so fast. And he has this ability to also execute. Like, you, it's one thing to learn and know what you're supposed to do, but then he executes really well. I think what happened, I think what we also have to kind of forget a little bit is that in the French Open, when 
I think the second set was quite close and, and it yeah. was intense. And Novak said in his press, like, I was getting really tired in that set. It got really, really physical. And I think that Alcaraz knows that if he can, if he can, that's what he did. He made it into this huge physical battle today. And unlike in Paris, when he was also super nervous and then had cramps and all that, he showed no signs of letting up today. So the, the more physical it got, I was like, yeah, Alcaraz, as you said, sometimes seems like he doesn't have a plan and plays on intuition and stuff like that. His plan was probably just to make it physical. <laughs> that was yeah. the plan. <laughs> and it worked. No, he did. I, I really liked what you said about yeah, seeing like a, a young child grow up so fast when you're not looking. And he is that. I mean, he is that kind of player who just like learns ridiculously fast. He feels like he's become and you can even track it almost with like his spoken English, even which is getting much better over the course of his very short public life. Like he's just learning becoming fluent in these different things in tennis so quickly, including grass courts, which, you know, he barely had an experience, as you mentioned, uh, before this year playing on grass. I mean, he made a fourth round last year and lost to center. Um, so he had done something on it. But this was his but... fourth fourth tour-level tournament on the surface. Yeah, and crazy. he's won two of them. Like, he, he's won two, half of the tournaments he has played. And what also jumps out about that is that the generation previous to him, and I think it's a separate generation from him, the 90s generation, has really struggled to acclimate to grass. I mean, so many of those guys uh, have not made it to even Wimbledon quarterfinal. Like before this tournament, well, this, this was the first Wimbledon quarterfinal for both Medvedev and Rublev. And still Tsitsipas, Zverev, uh, team have never made a Wimbledon quarterfinal even, any of them. So there's been something that's been proven really tough for, for men about learning on grass for whatever reason. And we just seen, yeah, a few of them figure it out, you know, uh, Chris Eubanks we'll talk about later is in kind of the same camp of someone who like very quickly got it to click for him after having some initial trepidation on the surface this year um, and maybe it can be that way maybe it, you know for some people it's just more natural and they can figure it out and get comfortable on it and get confident in their movement I feel like so much of of grass is about just being willing to to play uninhibited despite the, the slippery surface and not being nervous on it i think a lot of people are just nervous on the slippery grass for injury reasons which is fair but yeah but getting over that is is, is really key and, and alcaraz yeah all those wins unlocked it to the point where yeah by the time he got to the final in Djokovic, he inexperienced on the surface didn't really seem like an issue anymore he also had like a very legit path like yeah like he's he started off against like shardy and muller like those are winnable matches but then he had Nicolas Yari, who honestly is barely losing. He's doing really well. And yes, he's, yeah, he, he, he wins more on clay, but he's really, really legit. And then beating Berrettini and then Rune and then Medvedev. That you, by the time you reach the final, you really are hardened and, and ready. Uh, but still, I was very surprised. Yeah, definitely. No, and just even within this match, like once Djokovic won the first set 6-1, I was really like, yeah, sort of what I thought would happen. And then him, even once... Akra's got the break early in the second. I was thinking it would just come back to level, and then it did. But that, and then also the thing we mentioned, he won a tiebreak against Djokovic in that second set, which maybe really is what gave him confidence and also maybe put some doubt in Djokovic's head on some level because Djokovic has been so ice cold, rock solid in these tiebreaks. He'd won it, what, 14 or 15 in a row before that at Grand Slams? And so for him to come back and win a tiebreak in the final, had that, had that be where he really landed his first big blow against Djokovic in sort of a boxing sense. I think it was really meaningful. And then, yeah, then they had this epic, epic game midway through the third set, uh, the 1-3 the game, which lasted 13 deuces in like nearly half an hour. Yes. Um, and, 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 uh, he, and he converted. Too. Yeah, he converted the yeah. seventh break point of that game. That was that was, that was huge. At, at some point, I think that both of them probably forgot what point they're in or what's going on because it was exceptionally long. I don't even know how long it was because they didn't put it on the screen in terms of the length of the game. But yeah, 13 deuces and seven break points. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it was ESPN put it up. It was something like 28 minutes at some point. Maybe it got a little bit longer, but it was very, very long. I just felt I felt bad for whoever went to the bathroom right before that had to wait for that long to get back well, to their seat. Well, they showed the cameras, like people rushing off court, like people who really like needed to go to the bathroom or something. Yeah. It, look, it looked really funny. People were just sprinting out of center court. Ah, poor, poor timing. It's a, lot, it's a lot of smart bladder timing goes into being a tennis fan. Yeah, so, so what is this... How seismic, uh, I was saying before the match started, and I said this on the pre-show with, with Tumani as well, like men's tennis has just, this is obviously nothing new to anybody listening, but men's tennis has been really without a torch passing moment at a big tournament. And I would 
I almost look back at like Sitsipas beating Federer at the Australian Open in 2019 as being the closest thing. You could some people could point to Medvedev beating Djokovic in the US Open final, but I feel like there were a lot of different circumstances of that match with the calendar slam and everything, and Djokovic kind of just running out of gas. I feel like that was one where Medvedev finished him off, but I feel like Djokovic was really run down sort of by committee in that tournament, you know, going five in the semis against Zverev, and then tough against Berrettini and even like Jensen Brooksby and unknown at that point, Holger Runa in the first round, like a lot of different people wore him down. But this is the first one where Djokovic were, you know, in a grand slam final where a big guy is in good shape and still gets beaten by a, a, a younger player. And to me, it feels potentially, yeah, like a torch passing moment, which I think men's tennis has been lacking for, for decades. Narratively, that's the easy way to see it. Do you, do you think this represents a, a shift or is it too early to say this, this result? The only thing I will say the re- when you say torch passing is that like the person who passed it on is going to disappear, which is not going to happen. Or maybe that's my interpretation of what you said. Yeah, that, I don't mean to disappear immediately, but on their way out, I guess. What I think with Novak is it, it, this will almost help him. Like, mm. I feel like every like after he lost to Medvedev, he eventually came back and did really well. And now I think something like this... I. I don't know. I think that if you, he already said, I wish we, I, I, I'm looking forward to hopefully playing him at the US Open. I would love to play him at the US Open because I think that Novak thrives on these kind of things. It's kind of like when the crowd is against him and he likes to prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. If someone challenges, he, the fact that he surprised them, like he said the word, I, I was surprised that he is so good on grass so fast. He said that multiple times today in his press conference. And, and I think that he's intrigued by that. No, Novak does his homework. You know that in, in Espresso, he was like, Alcaraz almost lost his first match in Queens against Rinderknecht. Uh, like he, yeah. he, he was supposed to be in the mountains with his wife, right? Wasn't he like in the middle of somewhere? Like he went off the grid, <laughs> but he knew that he almost lost to Rinderknecht. Like yeah. that isn't, he thrives on, you know, like, Oh, so you think you can beat me on grass? Let me see what I can do against you. When you're defending your title, like it's kind of a nice thing that I think that they can have going on for quite a while because I don't see anyone else. Maybe Medvedev, he's the only person who can make this like instead of a two way battle for number one, because Medvedev can Mm -hmm. mathematically be there as well. But like, I don't know, passing of the torch, I still feel like Novak's going to keep winning more than losing these ones. The thing I would say is. It, it could be the start of a nice rivalry between them, which I understand sounds ridiculous when someone is 16 years older than the other one. But but I guess if I look at it in terms of how competitive it's been, they've played three times. Two of them were really, really, really close. The Madrid one and this one. And where they are in the rankings and if they in the big tournaments, I see them playing each other quite a bit. Like I, I, I feel like we're getting at least at least in this in this matchup, I don't know, like four or five more at least. Yeah, in terms of, I think it can be a real rivalry. And one rivalry, I think, just from doing, you know, some tennis history looking that I think is underrated as a rivalry, actually, is Steffi Graf versus Martina Navratilova, who overlapped quite a bit. And they had that similar kind of big age difference between them. And they weren't in the same eras. And they're not really thought of as contemporaries. But there was a pretty significant overlap of them between the late 80s and the early 90s. And they played a lot in big matches. And it really was about Steffi slowly getting control after Martina won some, some early versions of that match. And... I, I think this can be maybe that same sort of gap transition kind of rivalry in some way where, and I think also what you said made me think this, it can be great for Djokovic to have a new target because after he gets number 23 and passes Rafa and Federer for good, and I don't really think Rafa's he thinks is going to win more Grand Slams, he needs something new to make him hungry at this point. He's, he's All the numbers are his, right? Every possible record Djokovic kind of already has in men's tennis. And so... He needed something in some way to give him new ambition. So having a picture of Alcaraz mentally on the wall, or maybe physically if he wants to put him up on a wall for real, <laughs> something to train against, really could be really meaningful for Djokovic in terms of giving this chapter of his career a new purpose. Because we haven't really seen a situation where, well, I guess Federer, when he broke the record, he was in a while where he was had no, um, no immediate targets. But he actually didn't play his best tennis. And after he got to number 15 which is 2009, he didn't win a lot of slams for a while for the next couple of years after that. He only maybe won one or two more. So yeah, I think it can help for Djokovic to have a, have any target and also have something to prove, you know, to have to have someone to, to show that, no, it's not a torch pass. No, I am not done. No, you know, this we're not in a new Alcaraz era and I'm in the past. Like, I think that could 
yeah, give Djokovic motivation and also make him in some ways, maybe finally, like a character who is treated as a bit of an underdog for his age, the same way that like it took a long, long time for Serena to have that. Djokovic is 36. I mean, he's by, you know, the oldest to have done a lot of different things in tennis, but because he's been so uninterruptedly dominant, he doesn't come off as sympathetic in that any sort of underdog way. Um, but maybe this could plant a little bit of a seed of that that framing for him today. Yeah, especially like in the in the speech, uh, which obviously Alcaraz was saying it in a very respectful way. But when he said you were winning tournaments when I was just born, yeah, which is mathematically correct. Like I think Novak won his first title when he was seventeen or something. I don't remember exactly. It's close. I mean, joke, Alcaraz was born in '03, so it's a little bit on the early side of his career. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was two or three. I don't know. But, like, I just think that he... Obviously, Alcaraz meant it in a nice way because then he said, and you're in better shape than me. But I can imagine uh, something like that. Novak would be like, well, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll show yeah, you exactly. what a 36-year-old can do, you know? So, like, yeah, I think I think it, I think this is good. And I also, in a very... For, like, for very selfish reasons, I was not looking forward to spending the U.S. Open on Grand Slam watch. Mm-hmm. It's just like something, it overshadows everything else and makes it very difficult to do my job the way I like, which is focus on all the different stories. Because just going back to why I, I really enjoyed being at Wimbledon this tournament is because I was so free to pursue whatever story I wanted. And that is such a nice freedom. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. um, I, I interviewed, which we're going to get to, but I, like I spoke to Chris Eubanks after his first round when there's so much going on for our first rounds, you know, especially with the rain and all that, like there are uh, so many other people you can go and talk to. But like, I was like, no, I want to go and speak to him. And these are, this is, this is something that I can't do if Novak is on Grand Slam watch at the U S open. So. No, definitely. And I, I fully thought that I was thinking that in my preparing for this episode, like I actually think because I think because we did the whole thing so recently in 2021, I actually think the Grand Slam uh, storyline was actually really underplayed this mm. year because i mean Djokovic making it to the final of the of wimbledon that's the third closest anyone has come to getting the calendar grand slam in the last three decades you know between himself getting one match away and then including serena in that too i mean she got two matches away in new york like already getting to wimbledon final getting 20 of the 28 wins you need is already enormously close and already an incredible achievement on that front even if you don't get uh, the third box all the way checked so that was i think really impressive but i also yeah don't Having done it so recently, especially with him in 2021, I I was not especially excited about that being the story in New York. I don't know how much that weighed on him at all in this journey either. And I don't know how much he actually thought it was possible with how tough that was for him in New York last time. But yeah, that's that's off the table off the table for now. And and yeah, there's a real battle for number one that's going on. And like you said, it can be quietly a three horse race as well. More than the torch pass, let's different fire analogy, it's almost like a spark just being lit. Like it's just sort of like, oh wow, there's like there's some there's some energy here now in men's tennis. There's a there's a clear push pull conflict, and it's just not just the sameness. And Alcaraz, because he won his U.S. Open title without beating one of the big guys en route, I don't think that quite captured it. So even though he was a number one, I think he was still a little bit not fully formed or fully proven as a public quantity because this is his calling card. The same way that in like women's tennis for so long, like you could become a star either by like winning a Grand Slam or like beating Serena. You know, like you could do one or the other. Like Sloane Stevens became a bigger star for beating Serena than like Kennan became for winning the Australian Open. Like it's it, there's different ways to do it. And so for for Alcaraz to check both boxes in this huge way, Wimbledon by beating Djokovic in the final, is just I think it's really exciting for for men's tennis. I also just one thing is that the the hype usually the the that this matchup is creating like before it happens. Everyone was always like, we were waiting, like since Madrid, people were waiting for them to meet. And then they weren't meeting because they weren't playing the same tournaments at all. Yeah. And and then uh, when when it happened in Paris, barring that one competitive set, like it was it was a bit of a disappointment. And oh, I yeah. like that that kind of this matchup really validated that when they're both feeling really well, this is the kind of match we get to see. It was it was a quite competitive for large stretches of this match of the match barring the first set because even like yeah. you said like the the 6-1 set that Alcaraz won 
that had that marathon 28-minute game. So even you look on paper, you're like, oh, he won at 6-1. And then you look and you're like, oh, it was an 85-minute or whatever. I don't remember. It was an, it was hour, an 85. Yeah, that was the second. Yeah, it was an hour. Yeah. I just like that. You're, I like, yeah, I like the word spark. I feel like the word, yeah. the word spark is apt here. So, yeah. And so hope, hopefully the stars keep aligning. Hopefully we don't have what we had for the previous year where they were never in the same tournaments. That was crazy. This was delayed for so long, but it was worth the wait, how it paid off at Wimbledon for sure. Um, so that's all That's all really cool. And yeah, I'll be interested to see how they both go into hardcourts where they're both comfortable. That's the other great thing about Alcaraz is that he's immediately so comfortable now, we know, on every surface, right? He's a total mm-hmm. threat across the calendar. There's no real kind of dark period in his in his calendar where he's sort of question markable and same with same with Djokovic and Medvedev actually raises his grass stock so much by the semifinal run even if mm-hmm. the semifinal itself was not great um so yeah so it's great to see and his clay run also Medvedev was also really pretty good by his standards so um even though he lost first round French so yes yeah, so I think some exciting returns uh, for men's tennis right now as it sets up um I want to talk about a couple of the other guys the unseated guys who made runs here you mentioned Chris Eubanks who I want to talk about uh Chris Eubanks was really, I think, the breakthrough star of the tournament, certainly from an American perspective, uh, you know, making the quarterfinals last American standing. But I think also he captured a lot of worldwide imagination as well with what he did, uh, being very new on the scene in terms of being competitively relevant. People who, who follow tennis and maybe especially the WTA will know that he's been like a hitting partner for a long time <laughs> for a lot of really well-known WTA players from Serena to Naomi Osaka to Coco Golf. Like he's been sort of there as a, as a friend to them. And I think Blair Henley actually did like a little skit about it in one of her videos about Eubanks answering the phone to all the different WTA stars. But yeah, but his, his run uh, on grass was incredible. Uh, winning the Mallorca warmup and then beating Montero first round, Cam Nori in a big, big one second round on court one. And follows that up with no letdown beating Christopher O'Connell in straight sets. Uh, on court 18 and then comes out in the fourth round and beats Stefano Tsitsipas in five. And then he gets up two sets to one in the quarterfinals on Medvedev and loses a four set tiebreak and then loses a fifth, uh, six one, but just a, a really, really cool run. And like, I'll talk about his tennis a little bit first, and then we get to him as a person and his personality, which I know you got to talk to him, Reem, and a lot of people gravitated towards that as well. But his actual tennis was so great because he was so clear on what he wanted to do. Like the clear, like the clarity is what he was playing with and using his the weapons he has at his disposal to maximum effect was, was really fun to watch. Actually, he's a big server. who has got a big forehand and he was just keeping rallies so short, ripping the ball. And we said, talking about before the show, like he set a record for most winners struck at Wimbledon ever, as long as they've been recording that. Um, and he only made it five rounds too. He set the record for the whole tournament in five rounds. So, um, so that's crazy. And, and yeah, I just, I just really, really enjoyed him and I'm excited hopefully uh, for, you know, for him now to have a bit of a, it's a good scheduling timing where, you know, his next tournament will be Atlanta probably to have a bit of a homecoming and hopefully get some good support and welcome from, from the U S crowds up through, through New York. What was your impressions of, uh, of Eubanks? I'm guessing you probably hadn't had as much time seeing as, Americans, obviously. So uh, in general, for some reason, I've watched him a lot just because even at tournament and slams, I always cover qualies. So I always mm-hmm. like keep an eye on him. I always felt like he was a really nice guy. All the players always said that he was a really nice guy. And funny enough, I remember the uh, start of the French Open uh, before qualies was going was gonna to start. Uh, I was flagging people to feature who I just want to like the world to know more about. And I flagged him, even though I know like clay is not necessarily a surface at all. And I remember, like, the, my team were like, yeah, but, like, is he going to do well on clay? He's not going to probably qualify and all that. And I was like, but he's, like, a cool guy. We should know why. We should know why he's everyone's friend. It's kind of like <laughs> I see him as, as the owns of the men's tour in a way because just. That's a good call. Right? Like, I, I, I really yeah. do feel that they're kind of the same because it comes from such an authentic place. Like, I, like, when I was speaking with him, he's not trying to be people's friends, but, like, this is just how he is and i was like yeah that's kind of like once <laughs> and the energy is so positive around him yeah the same way yeah exactly so anyway i didn't get to speak to him in the french or feature him in the french but but then yeah when when he won his title in mallorca um he obviously landed late he actually did do pre-tournament press real quick but i wasn't able to make it so i figured no i'm gonna speak to him after his first round if he wins it and i remember we were in one of the small rooms like really small rooms and it was like me and couple other people who were waiting for Ben Shelton, so they were not really there for him. <laughs> but, like, I, I remember, like, Tumani was outside. I was like, hey, like, 
who are you waiting for? He's like, Ben Child. I'm like, come, come, come. This is Chris. It's going to be cool. And they, he just like came and just asked questions. He wasn't writing about him that day. And he is awesome. Like, first of all, there's many things. One of the things I really like, I, first of all, I agree with everything you said about his game. It's like something clicked and he figured out what to do and just like pummeling the ball and like with so much purpose. And I loved it. And I loved that four of his five matches were on show courts. Yeah. That was very cool. I felt like Wimbledon like felt like they were onto something there. And it was very cool. Like he beats their number one, the number one Brit, and then they put him on court 18. That's a cool move when he's playing Christopher O'Connell. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of what it, what struck me about him, first of all, he, he gives so much credit to every single person who helped him repeatedly because he was forced mm. to tell his story a million times because every round he won, he got into a bigger room and then he's getting more people asking him the same questions about himself. And him talking about his early days and how much help he got from Jeremy Jenkins and Donald Young and everyone who like the, the, the Atlanta tennis community was something that. I don't know. He he really gives so much credit and respect for people who helped him. He also is someone who really gets the most out of his relationships in a very honest way, in the sense of, yeah, if I'm friends with Naomi, yeah, I'm learning from Naomi. If I'm friends with Coco, I'm learning from Coco, even if she's like 10 years younger than me. And I love that. Even like he's struggling on the grass and he texts Kim Kleisters, who he got to befriend because they were together on World Team Tennis. And she gives him a few tips how to plant his foot, what to do. And immediately he uses it. Next thing you know, he's not losing matches on grass. I just yeah. think that's so cool. Like really, really cool. I really liked what he said too about how he wants to, even though he's obviously going to be seated at the U.S. Open now. He, he, I think way part of the reason he has an outsized footprint in the U.S., aside from his... Um, working with a lot of women who if you see them you might spot him there often is that he's been on tennis channel a lot as doing uh, uh being an analyst for tennis channel and doing match commentary and studio desk you know sort of commentary as well and he says he wants to keep doing that because it keeps his like mind thinking analytically and when he's watching he can almost like step outside himself as he, i think he said after the nori win like and and sort of analyze the match from like above like as if he was an analyst and that sort of thinking about it uh, it's really cool. And I was just thinking also, like, I'm so happy he's doing well. And I'm also really excited for him to be like a great tennis analyst for the rest of the time and have him in mm-hmm. the booth eventually. I think he'll be add so much value to whatever network he's gets such him. A he's, ESPN. he's such, such a natural. natural. And he's really yeah. smart and articulate and just like comes off really well. And I will say, watching this tournament, this is a purely US thing, so not so much for you to comment on, but like watching this tournament on ESPN for the first time in, in a decade. I was really struck by how how stale their lineup is in a lot of ways, honestly. They have a lot of people who I think individually are mostly pretty good, but there's almost no one who's been on tour in the last 20 years on their lineup. It's like the most, most, I think the youngest player of their former players is like James Blake, who's in his 40s by now and is, you know, wasn't sort of most competitive more than 15 years ago. I was just thinking like, oh, it'd be so great to have someone like Eubanks in the mix there. And I was also listening to world feed some and like hearing uh, Sonia Mirza, especially I really enjoyed um, as on her debut for commentary. Um, She's great. Anyway. So that was, that's what I was thinking of for Eubanks. Just like, it's really cool having someone young who is, you know, close with the Naomi's and the Coco's and the young generation. And also it's playing now more and more against these top guys. Um, I just, I think he'll have a, a real lifetime sort of career in tennis if he wants it and all sorts of different sides of, of the sport. Um, so just seeing someone like that come along um, in that way, is, you know, and that's sort of like a, almost like a Pekovic kind of thing, you know, like where you mm-hmm. see someone who's just a value add, uh, not just from their tennis, but from their, their personality and their, and their brain mm-hmm. too. I thought that was really just uh, satisfying to behold him, blossoming this way in this tournament yeah it was great to see what i also liked and i think that's what's working for him right now is that he he spoke about how it took him forever to try to break top 100 right so he said that Mm -hmm. like the move the move he said that a couple times like that the jump from like 110 to 85 is humongous for him it was huge for him but then he says 85 to 50 top 40 he's not making a big deal out of that in his mind this is not what he he spent so much time trying to make top 100. Uh, and he said that, like, especially in February when he had legit chance because he was like 102 and then he played like Acapulco in Monterey or something and did really bad. And he was like, because I was obsessed. I was like, I'm two away, two spots away. And then now he's playing with this freedom because every he's seeing it at the moment as that everything is a bonus. 
oh, I like I'm I'm playing free. But I wonder now that he's gonna, he could be seated in slams and he knows that he can yeah. beat all those guys. If at some point the pressure will will reappear, you know, because right now he's really playing pressure free, and I love it. It's so fun yeah. to watch. The stakes will flip because people also will know him now. You know, people will have seen him. There will be more of a book out on how to play Chris Eubanks um, among the coaches, among other players. People will talk. People will look at his game and try to break it down and find weaknesses. And also, mm-hmm. you know, he also becomes a little bit more of a, um, you know, a target himself, being a Wimbledon quarterfinalist. If you get to play, you know, Eubanks first round in Atlanta or Washington, you would not say, hey, if I beat him, this is a good win. Whereas mm-hmm. before it was, you know, a qualifier or someone like, gosh, I don't, I hope I don't lose him. That'd be bad. So the script flipped very quickly for him um, in a real way from to go from never being top 100 um, before Miami to being seated at the U.S. Open is, is remarkable. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so definitely looking forward to his journey ahead. Someone to definitely keep track of uh, in the U.S. swing up ahead, North American swing up ahead. One other player I want to talk about on the men's side before we get to the women, uh, someone we spent a bunch of time actually talking about on the draw show, Tumani and I, uh, sort of flagging him in the draw, and then he did wind up doing really well, uh, was Matteo Bertini, who made the fourth round uh, after having a really rough year or so. He's unseated. He beat Sanego in the first round, which is a tough first round, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, who he had lost really badly in Stuttgart, and then he beat Stimenar and then Zverev, both in straight sets. Uh, and then he took the first set off Alcaraz in the fourth round before losing in four. Reem, you also talked to, to Mateo uh, before the tournament. What was it like seeing his perspective before the tournament and then his sort of journey through it? This felt like a very meaningful uh, event for him. I was I was amazed by his run because we were in the in in this the second interview room and I think there was like me and Howard from the AP and that was it. Like mm-hmm. in terms of Eng- English speaking press and maybe two or three Italian journalist tops uh, so it was kind of like for, for someone who was just two years ago a finalist there it was a very kind of intimate setting for his pre-tournament press and he was very down like you felt like he had no confidence whatsoever he even said that like he was not feeling confident uh, big picture style he was talking about like how how much pressure he has felt since he started doing really well and he's like, he's, he kept talking about how much his life had changed of like people stopping him on the street and telling him, we expect you to win and things like that. And, and he, he just spoke about that he, he's probably not ready. He probably wasn't going to play the tournament. He's worked hard, but like didn't expect anything from himself. So, and he was the thing for him that was the most jarring part is that for like the last three years, he was going into slams expecting a run from himself and having like specific goals and knowing like I can I know I can reach the final whereas he was Mm. coming into Wimbledon with no expectations whatsoever no goals whatsoever and he was like that's weird for me and he was very very consistent at the slams and he at some point he was making like four or five quarterfinals at least or better in a row and he was only losing to Novak or Rafa at the slams Uh, he had no bad losses really for a while so that for him was all very jarring and he just honestly he sounded really down and then next thing you know, he's in the second week and getting all these legit wins. And I think Demon had won a title on grass in the build-up, no? Didn't Demon win one of the grass titles? I think he did. Uh, he at least did well at Queens. Maybe he made Queens final at least. and then Maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. But he's a yeah, good grass player. Some... Annually a good yeah, grass player. Exactly. So, like, that really, really surprised me. And I think good for him because I think even not just that he didn't expect it, he also kind of was winning. He kept saying, I'm winning because of my will, not because of anything else. Like, even that's what he said before the tournament. He said, like, my hope is that my will, that's actually what he said before the tournament. He said, I hope my hope is that my will will, will be bigger than where my tennis is at or my physique is at right now because it's not somewhere good. And that's what he did. All right. Let's talk about the women's draw now. The women's champion, Marketa Vondrosheva, winning the final over Angeber 6-4, 6-4. First unseated Wimbledon champion on the women's side. First finalist unseated, which was shocking to me in open era unseated because in this era of women's tennis, we've had, you know, a Radu Kanu versus Fernandez slam final and things like Ostapenko happened that Wimbledon had somehow stayed uh, somewhat insulated from that unpredictability on the women's side. I think it was really interesting. But Vondrosheva comes through. And for me, I'm curious, Rima, I know you left a couple days early, but like how much was... Vondrosheva on the radar at all because for me it felt like no one was paying attention to her 
really late in this tournament, like almost even into the final. Like she just was not the story of this tournament. And it, it, she really, yeah, it was under radar and, and, and snuck up on people was my sense of it. How did, how did you feel about, did you, were you tracking her progress? You feel like anyone was really tracking Vandrosheva as a, a plausible titleist here? Uh, I didn't see her as a plausible titleist, to be honest, especially given how little experience she had on grass coming in. But mm-hmm. I did flag her when she beat uh, Vekic in straights, because that for mm-hmm. me, Vekic is always someone you can depend on, like on grass. I thought yeah. that was a really good win at the time. And I was like, oh, really? Vondrusova beat Vekic on grass? Like that, that was like a, especially like it was like a 6 1, 7 5. Like it was straight sets for sure. And then. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Boskova match was something I followed as well because Bos- Boskova got the first set and I was like, oh, she's going to make back-to-back quarterfinals. And then she ended up losing that. And then obviously the Pagula one, I think, is when most people started noticing a little bit because that was kind of Jess's chance to kind of get to her first uh, Grand Slam semifinal and she didn't. But honestly, even in the final, I'm going to be honest, not and, and not out of bias at all, but just the numbers and, 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 the, and the history and everything... Even though she had beaten Ons twice, I, I definitely thought Ons is a superior grass court player and had more experience and was going to win that. So, yeah, no, she, I think she took everyone by surprise. Yeah, no, completely. I think if you look at, for me, the women's tournament was defined by two different players um, who both made history by both winning four matches against past slam champions. Mm-hmm. And they were Elena Svitolina, who beat Venus right off the bat in the first round, and then Kenan third round then Azarenka and then Sviantek was one to make the semifinals and then the other one was Ons who you know beat uh, Andrescu, Kvitova, Rybakina and Sabalenka to make the final and those were to me like the two people who really captured the imagination of the tournament in a lot of ways and then they both kind of they both famously lost to Pontrosheva in the semifinal and final respectively and to me I think there was it was a little bit in a way, kind of like Raducanu's run, where I feel like part of it was she was playing well, but also part of it was she was catching people who had been doing big things before that match, kind of running out of steam a little bit repeatedly. Mm. And it's tough for me to, to process how much of that is Von Joshua's doing, which I'm sure a lot of it is, and how much of it is just them hitting a wall that is not totally related to their opponent. That was kind of the sense I got for both the semifinal and final against Fidelina and and Jabir, which I'm ready to admit it's possibly very unfair to, to Vondrosheva to discount her like that. Um, but I did think for both of them, they just had done so much in this tournament before that match that Vondrosheva was a, a, a challenge that just caught them unready or just low on energy in some way. I think it could be a combination of both. Like, yeah. I, I definitely see Vondrosheva as someone... I think Courtney was saying that. It's like, she does make... She does make people look silly sometimes on court and you don't know why in a very like deceptive kind of way. Like she is under the radar in every possible way, even when she's doing really well. You can't tell why she's doing really well, but because she's smart and again, someone who improved very fast on grass. She had two grass court tour level wins before the season. Two. And on, if you want to, on the flip side, someone like Ons has won. From the beginning of 2021 until now, she has won the highest number of grass court matches on tour across all the women. She has 28 wins since the start of 2021. So there's no comparison. But Mondrusova's smart. And, and that's what I, that's the whole time in the final is like, not just smart, but like, she's so calm as well. I felt like I'm just going to step on court. I'm going to do my thing. And she never, I feel like she never really fa- faltered. Yeah. But I definitely, I think that if, in the case of someone like Ons, if if you have taken out everyone you just mentioned, especially against Rebecca and Sabalenka, she she is on on paper the underdog and probably is the underdog, yeah, this year at least. So she 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 comes from an underdog position, and actually, Ons was not feeling well coming in. She hasn't like she hasn't been feeling well since like since she came back from injury. She hasn't she hadn't really done it much obviously the French Open run to the quarters was good then she lost to Bia and then she didn't do well on grass coming in so all this was like unexpected and suddenly she's pushing I mean I think the Petra win for me 
was a huge surprise just the way she won it. It was like six love, six four, maybe it's three, six love, six three, something like that. Yep, it took so much, it, it took so much out of her. And in every single one, even against Petra, she's an underdog. Petra coming in, coming off a title and being a two time Wimbledon champion. And just in that matchup in general, Petra kind of, they always have close matches, but Petra has beaten Ons more than Ons has beaten Petra. And then, you do all that, and then suddenly you're in a final for the second consecutive year as the number six seed against an unseeded opponent, ranked 42 in the world, with limited experience on grass. She's suddenly a favorite, and I think that also makes a big difference. Just, just, Mar- yeah. Marquetta, Marquetta was free. Like, she, and I think also when a year ago you were in London as a tourist in a cast and sidelined for six months that year because of surgery. Then you're you suddenly getting all these opportunities and these big wins. You play free because it's like you don't take that for granted, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, her mindset was there. And the other reason I think I really didn't rate her very highly, uh, her chances going through even deep, deep into this tournament was because of seeing her in that 2019 French Open final against Barty, which was honestly one of the worst Grand Slam final performances by anybody in, in recent memory. You know, winning just a handful of games against Barty in that match and just not seeming very present there. But yeah, but she showed up just focused and relaxed and just chill, really, really chill. And Ons was not in that final. And, and, you know, I think for me watching Ons, I'm curious what you think. For me, a lot of it did feel like physical fatigue that was just sort of bearing itself out mentally. It was a combination of the two that she just, her, she didn't seem to be able to sustain her focus because she had leads in both those sets, but just kind of just mentally had had slips or just slides or just couldn't really sustain concentration in that way more than anything about the matchup itself even if she had yeah lost to Vondrosheva interestingly before I don't know what what do you what do you just shift to Ons a bit like what do you what do you chalk Ons's uh performance in that final up to because that was obviously after everything she did which was really exceeding expectations and like you said in the previous rounds after coming in you know not very proven this year all of a sudden she raised expectations with those performances and then fell short of them in the final. I personally felt like Ons looked like she had the weight of the world on her shoulder. That's really, mm. that's how that's how she came off to me in that, especially in the beginning of that match. And it reminded me of her first set against Bianca. It was so similar, just how low on energy. She was just low on energy. Like Ons in the general likes to draw energy from the crowd, likes to get hyped up, likes to put on a show, all of that stuff. Uh, and I remember in her first set against Bianca in the third round, it was her first match on center court, I think, of that tournament. And uh, she, yeah, I was like, I was worried because I'm like, Onsa's so flat. Yeah, it, she was not moving her legs at all. It was weird. And the final was that like that for me. And I just think we underestimate the pressure of you're going to be the first ever African-born player to ever win a slam. Like, I think we all of yeah. these... First, first, first things. I think we, we underestimate the pressure it brings. That's my guess because she lo- I really felt like she felt the weight of the world on her shoulder. And obviously, mm-hmm. Ons is someone who vocalizes her goals, doesn't shy away from saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, and I want to do this. And, and it, she draws so much strength from that and she gets so close to actually pulling it off. But then I just think that it ends up being too much for her in the end. Against someone who's being very free, who doesn't have that pressure, who's a kind of completely different scenario to her. And I just, I think that maybe against a different player, she could have tried to recover. I just think that she couldn't, she could, listen, once the whole tournament, she, like up until the final, she drops her just seven times in six matches, which is yeah. pretty good. On the women's story, that's pretty decent. Yeah. So, and, and look at who she was playing. She's playing people who can break her serve. She's playing people like, a Rebecca or Sabalenka can just like pummel the return, right? So she only got broken seven times in the first six rounds. And then look against Marketa, she couldn't hold at all. Yeah. And I feel like when Ons, when you feel like she can't serve and she's not moving her legs, it's all pressure. That's what I feel. Yeah. I think it's more mental than physical. Yeah, and especially with her, you know, because she has gotten those two finals last year and she was a favorite, I think, going into that match against Rebecca, although Rebecca obviously was a a fairly well-regarded player within tennis, um, even kind of low, lower profile at that point. Like people who knew her and knew what she could do and knew how real that talent was. Uh, then the second final against against Iga at the US Open, I think she was a pretty clear underdog and could play pretty free in that match. Um, but yeah, but this one, 
everyone thought she was going to win. Everyone kind of thought she had it. And that's, that's tough, you know? And she said on court that it was the most painful loss of her career, which was very evident, you know, like it just, yeah, whether you're right. I think the stuff, and you can speak to this well, the stuff about the pressure about trying to make history for her region. And then also just knowing, you know, that you have this chance against Von Joshua, maybe it would have helped her to play someone like Iga in the final or someone even like Svitolina, someone who's a little bit more proven, so it wouldn't mm. just feel like all the pressure in the spotlight was on her in this match. Um, because yeah. that really was a lot to to bear. Because, yeah, like I said, I don't think people really started processing Von Joshua. For me, just considering the tournament on the outside, it didn't feel like people were taking her seriously until, like, the second set of the final. Like, it was so late they realized, like, oh, wait, here's this woman who can win Wimbledon. It was She was an afterthought even in the final. And so that, that means so much outsized pressures on, on Jabur. Yeah, I think it's also hard to watch her because her first three matches were court seven, court fifteen, court fifteen. Yeah, and 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 those were the matches where the, that were like being shuffled around the whole time because of the rain and all that. So really, you didn't have much of a chance to watch from Jusufa until the second week when she was on court number two against Boskova. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think many people are watching, including her opponents. But good on her yeah, because yep. that was so 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 steady. I was I was so impressed how steady she was, even when. I mean, Ons would go up a break, she'd break her back, she'd go up a break again, she'd break her back, like she just never stopped. That first set actually was more impressive than anything because the first set she was like twice down by a break and then ends up just taking the first set. I'm curious on, on what you're saying about her just being under radar again. Like, do you have a sense of why that is? Because like on paper, Joseph has actually done a lot. Like, you know, made a Grand Slam final before in Paris, Olympic silver medal uh, in 2021 in Tokyo. Uh, losing a close final to Benchic there, and now this run as well. But she still feels like someone who, I don't know, like we don't know super well as a as tennis public. Do you well, she gets injured a lot. Yeah, that's true. She gets she, injured yeah, she a lot. She spends. The that's true. Yeah, she's she spends a lot of time on the sidelines. She's been very unlucky, and also let's be honest, the Olympics tennis in the Olympics is not the biggest thing, and it's not it's especially that Tokyo one. Yeah, yeah, that Tokyo one was difficult. Like. I, I bet you if you get a lot of tennis fans and ask them to name both podiums, singles podiums, not everyone will be able to name the six players. Right. So, yeah. And I just think because, yeah, she's still 24 years old. Uh, she's quite young. Uh, she got injured a lot. And it's because it's been interrupted. She also, I don't think she's been given her fair shot in terms of coverage. Uh, at, like the coverage where you can actually see her on camera and hear her, hear her speak, right? Because we're in an era now where like, with the top players, you see a lot of them online. There's a lot of content coming out on them. There's the Netflix stuff. There's this and that. So, like, there's a, with a lot of these mm-hmm. women, you get to know them really well. But I feel like with Marqueta, there isn't that much, like, content and video content that was created around her that will make the current fans of tennis know more a lot about her. She hasn't been given her fair shot as well. Yeah. And, and also, I, th- I think it also has to do with being Czech, just because that is such a saturated small country you know like she hasn't really had the sort of space you know or the ground to sort of grow roots in the public consciousness you know like she's even just she's not even you know mukova just happened in the french yep. open final and obviously we have kvitova and pliskova and even looking ahead to the younger ones like noshkova and, and the fruvirtovas like there's just so much and, and krejcikova who just want to slam two years ago like there's so much going on in that in that pond of czech tennis that like it's hard to sometimes get too much elbow room to make a name for yourself, even probably within the country. I'd be curious, like how much even domestic Czech tennis fans were like foregrounding Marquetta uh, as a player, given all the all the options they have and all the people they have. Yeah, true. You're right. We'll see now how she do. I mean, if she stays healthy, well, she can be a tricky player, clearly on any surface. So we'll see. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, that should, like like Alcaraz. I mean, she just said. Results already in all three surfaces. So, yeah, she can if she can keep this going, she can be. I'll be curious to see how she how she handles this and how much yeah how she can back it up or not in the hard court swing, which is coming up for the next very many months. I want to ask about I mentioned her in passing before, uh, but Lena Svitolina, like what that that to me she felt like she was the story of the tournament uh, while she was in it. What she's doing, both is sort of two stories multiplying. The, the mom comeback story and the Ukraine story created this really powerful force together. And to me, she was the, 
sort of heartbeat of the tournament as from a consumer level again for this tournament what what did you see for her run and and what was it like covering her or being on the grounds with her making her her march it's definitely for me i would say the biggest story up until before the final for me that was the biggest story I, every, what I love about Elena, she's always been a great person. I always enjoyed talking to her. Very kind person. Always respected her. It was not always easy to write a lot about her. And everything about Elena, I feel, has changed. To the be- Not that it was bad before. It's just different now. She's talking with so much confidence and she's playing with so much confidence she's more she's more aggressive on the court you can tell that with with elena everything she is saying she's really feeling and it's reflected into how she's playing as well so every time she says i feel like i'm playing for a bigger cause she genuinely believes that and is playing for that and the the power she is drawing from the situation she is in wanting to do good for ukraine and that's also something that Lesya Tsarenko was saying, because Lesya Tsarenko had like a really rough time and then suddenly had like really good runs in the in the last two slams. And and she was saying, when I speak with my fellow Ukrainian players or when I speak with people back home, they tell me, you want to help us go win more, make more money, donate. And kind of mm. Lesya zeroed in on that. And it's been working for her, uh, especially for someone like Lesya, who's like had cr- chronic pain forever and I don't remember it was a shoulder or something and suddenly it's like it's not even there and Elena the strength she's drawing from all that plus being a mom I know a lot of the moms always say that you kind of if you're leaving your baby behind in any job not just in tennis if you're like need to go leave just leave the house you kind of want to make it worth it like there's a reason why I'm leaving you for two weeks it's 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 for something you know and I think the combination of that is really making her unbeatable, but also so lovely to see and so lovely to watch. I just love it. She's playing more aggressive. She's playing the best she's ever played in terms of watchable game. Yeah. Pure aesthetics. It's just amazing. Everything is, I think you're right. Everything is different about the sort of whole package that she offers on court and off. It's just a different commodity, you know, a different presence than than it was before. But the game is, yeah, much more aggressive much less uh, about defense and speed and more about being assertive, which especially showed itself well on grass. And um, seeing her hit all those winners was just different. I also give credit there to her coach, uh, Raymond Sloter, who's obviously been with her during a lot of these great results that she's achieved this year. And yeah, like it's and that combined with the purpose. It's just, it's a whole different thing. I just find her incredibly, incredibly compelling. um, Mm -hmm. And in just a very different way than she was uh, in the earlier chapters of her career. So that's been, I think, a really great value add for tennis this year. I don't, I don't want to take away from before. She was always a fighter. Like you can, you will know yeah. that she will never give up in a match. She's always had that. She, she, she's. But the 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 style of game is very different. That's another big thing. Like, yes, she's yeah. not giving up, and she was never giving up before. But now she actually has more tools to 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 get the wins in a more compelling way for for people to watch. And she's just kind of controls her own destiny more on court. She's not just responding to what the other players doing the way she was with her old game. Mm-hmm. I feel like the last player I want to sort of talk about is the player who, who Svitolina beat in the quarterfinals, Iga Shiontek. Also had a you know started out well on on grass, got a few wins in Bad Homburg, came in, uh, made it to the fourth round where she saved match points against Belinda Bencic to make the quarters. Then she loses a, a pretty tight quarterfinal to Svitolina. Mm-hmm. What did, what did you see from, from Iga in this tournament? It seemed like, to me, it feels like a breakthrough event, even if it didn't lead that much further than her previous Wimbledon runs. But I don't know. To me, this felt like a something she should hopefully be very proud of. To me, it felt significant for setting her up for Wimbledon's in the future, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I think with Iga, it, it's literally one step every year. Like I, I feel like it's it's slow and steady. And that's mm-hmm. also how I feel she's approaching it in her mind, because... I remember when we spoke to her in those small roundtables after the French Open, she, she, the first thing she's saying, like, I'm all about, like, I just want to learn more about how to play on grass. I'm still mm-hmm. not great on it. Again, like, I, I also feel that this is a bit of a mentality because some other players just, like, throw the 
the whole rule book out and think like, I don't care if it's grass or not or blah, blah. I'm just going to keep pointing. It's like Alcaraz, you know, like somehow, yes, he learned so fast, but also I just feel like he was riding this wave where like, I'm not going to put it in my head that I'm not experienced yeah. on grass. I'm just going to go for it. Iga's not like that. Iga's very methodical and breaks down everything. And before the grass even started, she was like, yeah, I'm still not very comfortable on it. I still need to learn this. I still need to learn that. She has made progress, as you mentioned, and we could see it. And her match against Benchich was great. And even this Vitalina one was good. And I, I just think that in her mind, she felt like she needed to earn her place, like in a Wimbledon final in a different kind of way. Like I, I really mm. need to, it's, she don't want to, it's almost like she doesn't want to luck, luck into it. You know, she doesn't mm. want, she doesn't mm. want to, randomly or luckily make a final even though she, deep inside she feels she doesn't move as comfortably as she would like on the surface and it's because and movement is a huge part of her game and that's why i think like also that just the lack of confidence in the movement sometimes is still holding her back a little bit but this was definitely a massive step up especially like the i don't know the, the match against suribus tormo or like i mean she had, she had a couple of really good ones before she played martich i feel right yeah, yeah. Lu, uh, Julen and uh, and Julen, Suribes, Martich, Benchich. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So no, I mean, I I enjoyed I enjoyed some of her matches. I just think that in her mind, she still thinks like she she needs to know a bit more about the surface. I guess last thing I would enough for the women. Like, where do you think all of this sets up the the sort of stakes or the 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 race, the U.S. Open, North American swing? Like, where who, who do you think is the favorite? a big picture for us open because so many different players you know had different results here is there a clear person you think is set up especially well for for new york or is it still up for grabs i mean i, I would put Iga back as a favorite in general for new york mm. but i think arena sabalanka i i had picked arena as the for to win wimbledon i thought arena was mm-hmm. gonna win before wimbledon and i still think that i the way I, the way she's playing i was I honestly was shocked that Ons beat her, not because of Ons, just because of how I've now started to rely a lot on Sabalenka regrouping and being calm. And yeah. then I know Mukova beat her and everything, but like it's, she, she's having so many legit deep runs in every single tournament. So I would always, I feel like at the moment we can, we can bank on her to at least always be in a semi or a final of a big tournament. Iga, I feel would be the favorite. I think Rebakina's in, is in good shape as well, much better than what I thought. She said she had that virus and it wasn't making fear well. She wasn't feeling that well because of it and stuff, but I think that she's back on track. So I feel like we have this group of three, four players who are going to make things interesting moving forward, which is great because it's it's not like a million players and you don't know who's going to do what because you ha- you have a lot of consistency from this core group. Uh, I'm curious to see how Ons recovers from this loss i mean she recovered so well last year when she made the us open final right after wimbledon i don't know how she's gonna react this time i'm curious to see jessica pegula also after Mm -hmm. that kind of for her i guess was kind of she was really annoyed after that loss like her press conference she was like super annoyed i'm curious to see how benchich does on the hard courts i'm curious to see if coco is gonna find her mojo like there's quite a few that i don't know how they're gonna do but i think it's we do have a core group of three or four players who are like separated themselves a bit from the rest yeah i think you're right i think that almost like the in some ways the von joshua title it's almost like a misdirect from how stable this draw was except for that in a lot of ways right because the, all the top four made the quarterfinals in the four seeds which is very rare mm-hmm. so that's stability you know and even if von joshua is, is the winner shiantek posted up well Pagula made a quarterfinal first time Wimbledon, very close to making semis. And if Pagula wins that match, I mean, who knows where the tournament unfolds from there. It's kind of an interesting what if, like what happens if Pagula beats Vondrosheva um, in mm-hmm. that match. And then, yeah, Ons is number six, also doing well. Yeah, I think it was a, a kind of, in certain ways, it was both a stabilizing tournament, but then also a destabilizing winner. So it's an interesting kind of both on that sense for, for the women's tour, which we look forward to watching more of uh, as it heads towards my country. Reem, thank you very much for, for being on here. Any other final thoughts on Wimbledon or uh, on quarter off that you want to share before we let you go? Oh, I want to give a quick shout out to um to Shay Suey and Barbara Shutseva who won the women's doubles today. <laughs> a wonderful result there. 
Yes, we love it. And also, especially that this is Barbara's last Wimbledon. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty cool because the last time she was at Wimbledon was 2019 when she actually made semis and won the doubles. So it's kind of like her last two Wimbledons were epic for her, yeah. which I love for her. Very cool. Definitely. And Shay, well, Shay won back to back, no? She won the French with the. Uh, yeah, she won uh, the French with Wang Xinyu and then wins Wimbledon with Stritsova, which I think is tremendous for Shay. Just like. No matter the partner, no matter the surface, she's doing her thing. I love it. It's been great, yeah. Very, I, hope, I hope she and Shirts will play US Open together. I hope they get that one. I imagine they will. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I imagine they will because that's going to be Barbora's last tournament, like Feral mm-hmm. tournament. So, yeah, I hope they do. Cool. But then they're going to qualify. Then they can qualify <laughs> for the finals, and then Stritz is not going to retire again. <laughs> Shirtsova, I think if she qualifies for for year end championships wherever they wind up being, that uh, yeah, that she'll show up for that. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. Maybe she. Yeah, I don't know how close they are even are with just this result. Um, there's not the rule like there is for the men where if you win a slam, you get it automatically. But um, yeah, it's a pretty pretty cool result. Um, Graham, thank you very much. This was a delight talking to you again, and uh, hopefully speak to you again soon. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Benjamin. Bye, folks. To close out this episode, I have the unexpected distinction of sharing with you a composition made today by Dan Byrne, whom many of you may remember as a singer-songwriter, often inspired by tennis, who has been on NCR a few times before, including in NCR Vision with his song Isner and Mahout. Uh, Dan wrote and performed something today that truly amps up the mythology of what happened in this Wimbledon men's final uh, to something fitting of that country's St. George, perhaps. Enjoy. In Belgrade, they trudge around, their heads are sagging. Their shoulders droop, their spirits, they're flagging. But in Barcelona, liquor from a wagon. Young Carlitos has slain the Serbian dragon. In Copenhagen, room was strutting round and bragging. The great god Tsitsipas, Serbian, he was slagging. But in Smederevo, people now are gagging. Young Carlitos has smoked the Serbian dragon. From Montreal to Rome to Cincinnati, there is hope. Youth can now be served. We've seen the great beast slain. His feet were on the dragon's chest, his sword raised to the sky. His eyes were lifted past the Spanish plain. This song's most done coming, let's not be straggling. Time to take a stand, no zigzagging. The young guns on this hill have stuck their flag in. Young Carlitos has slain the Serbian dragon. Serbian dragon. Ooh.